0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. Good to have you with us today. Am I invisible or am I on the camera? I can be seen? All right. Good deal. had two weeks in a row where I was invisible on Sunday afternoons, which had me pretty excited for my new superpowers and uh, the idea of becoming a superhero. I've been dreaming of that for years. So um, anyway, welcome. Good to have you with us. We are taking a break from systematic theology, as many of you know. So last week we concluded Volume 1. We're now one-fourth through uh, of the Geisler Volumes. We will, we will get back to Volumes 2, 3, and 4. But for this uh, current quarter, I think, uh, 13 weeks, maybe more, 14, 15 weeks, depending, uh, I do want to do some, uh, some classes on dispensationalism. I did uh, announce the book a couple of weeks ago in the church app that we are using Charles Ryrie uh, and his book on dispensationalism. I'll introduce that here shortly as well and kind of give a big picture. I want to use today as an introduction. I want to give uh, a bibliography. I want to show some different things and then uh, and then take some questions as we kind of prepare for what's coming up. One of the biggest things I want to do before we leave is uh, have everybody equipped to understand what dispensationalism is not. Because uh, you'll be accused of certain things, and if ever somebody throws it in your face and says, oh, well, you, this is what you believe, just laugh at them and say, no, that's not what we believe, that's not what dispensationalism is. Why did you think that's what dispensationalism is? Okay, And uh, you'll be equipped to, to, to do that here before we finish today. So uh, before we do get started, let's uh, take some moment for silent prayer, ask for our Father's blessing upon our time and the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, we thank you for truth, the privilege and blessing that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Thank you for just all of the blessings you pour forth at Austin Bible Church, the line upon line, precept upon precept teaching of your word, and for these seminary classes, Father, where these men are being equipped, and I just thank you for men and women that are seeking your will and knowing their giftedness, in pursuing their ministries, and all these things, Father. We commit to you our time today in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so as I said, we are going to use uh, Ryrie as a basic text, and we're going to work through this chapter by chapter, kind of like we did with Geisler. Um, I haven't decided yet. if I probably do need to actually write quizzes for this, uh, which I, I'm horrible at writing quizzes, but um, we'll see if uh, if I can actually get some quizzes done for this. And if nothing else... That the purpose for the quizzes is, is to reinforce uh, what should be learned in the lesson so that not only do you do the reading, but you have the reading reinforced by the key takeaways that cannot be missed before you moving on to the next to the next topic. And so those quizzes are of, of great value. I'm also going to introduce you to a number of other authors and texts and things. I want to give a big enough sampling so that we don't get lost in the diagrams, so that we realize there's a there's a variety among dispensationalists and how they use terms and how they use different expressions. And a lot of times they're saying the same thing, but they're using different words. And sadly, sometimes they're using the same words, but they're using the same words in different ways. And I'm going to be highlighting that for you as well. One of my goals 30 years ago uh, was to try to develop a consistent uh, dispensational vocabulary scheme whereby we, we stop all the craziness of the uh, the back and forth ways that age and dispensation and some of these labels get get applied to things. And uh, I don't know if I've succeeded or not, but at least in my mind, I have. And if I can spread that around to more people, then uh, it will it will be a benefit, I think. So we can talk about those things as well. So let's start with dispensationalism by Charles Ryrie. Before I get to this, um this would be kind of fun. I also want to use this class on a more interactive basis, so there is a microphone ready to go. And if we have questions, don't hesitate to raise your hand, and we'll we'll take those questions. I do want to do a lot of back and forth. Um, but especially, I think it's useful for me, and I pretty much know everybody here, but if you're coming, if, if, is Austin Bible Church, is this the first ever dispensational church that you've been a part of? Is that is that the case? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Oh, quit it. Yeah, okay, that's so well now if you were a part of Baraka before here, then Austin Bible Church is not the first. Yeah, okay. So so yeah, you're, yours is not. But Okay, well this gives me a good idea. So uh I think a lot of people are dispensationalists, they just don't realize it. Or they're only partially but they haven't they're not completely on board because they've never had the teaching that gets them on board. And and sadly our bro- our i call them loving brethren on the uh, on the non-dispensational side of of evangelical christianity they um they they despise us very frequently uh much more so than we even know about them to be fair uh, i think uh we we do have right criticism against lordship salvation we have right criticism against uh, the, the hyper-deterministic Calvinism. We have a right criticism of a lot of things that we disagree with while we still love them in Christ and, and we don't count them as enemies. We just pray that they come to agree with us sooner rather than later to uh, <laughs> resolve some of those questions. Okay, um, and, and the same thing, too, when it comes to the, our non-dispensational brothers, uh, because most of them actually are if you pin them down. And this is where we're going to also endeavor over the next 14 weeks to do just that, so uh, so this is good. This gives me a, a good idea. And then, um, if if I sat down with you and put, if I took the names off and I took the labels off, and I put a uh, Schaefer diagram down next to a Schofield diagram, next to a Larkin diagram, next to a Bolander diagram, if if uh, and, and a dozen others, okay. If I put a Tommy Ice diagram down. Would you be able to differentiate between them by seeing how they're drawn, seeing how they're labeled, seeing uh, how they're structured, things like that? Um, I don't suspect many of us do, unless you really get into the weeds. And and I've been in the weeds for a long, long time, and so I forget that a lot of this, uh, the nuances and the distinctions in, that are found, um, will be lost on a lot of people. And and so one of my goals for this class over the next 14, 15 weeks, however long it is. One of my goals is to get us uh, thinking conceptually so that we, we have the concepts very clear. And then if there is a specific diagram that might not exactly be 100% in tune with our diagram, like maybe if they end things with a millennium and they don't know anything about the fullness of time, okay, that's a big one. But things like that, if if there are some slight, adjustments, then we don't freak out, okay? We don't freak out. We don't panic. We don't uh, act like, um, you know, that we can't talk to those people or we have to disassociate with them or anything of the sort, okay? Because just the fact that they have a diagram is a win-win, all right? We we can, uh, we can tweak the details after that. But just, you know, when I meet somebody that's pre-tribulational, that believes in a pre-tribulational rapture, that believes in the in the premillennial return of Christ, um, you know, man, we are a remnant of a remnant of a remnant because the bulk of I mean, forget Catholicism and Orthodox and and the main line denominations. Even just among evangelical Bible churches, you're gonna find that a significant a larger number of them are covenant all mil and a very small number are uh dispensational. Okay. And so just in terms of, of remnant of a remnant of a remnant, uh, the last thing we need to be doing is making enemies out of people that have crummy charts, okay? And just praise God they've got charts and uh, and take it from there, okay? And fellowship over the, the realms of agreement. Does that make sense? All right. So uh, Ryrie is, is our text. Let me introduce this one. And there have been a couple of editions of this over the years. Um, I think the one prior to this, the original one that was back in the 1960s, I think, was called Dispensationalism Today. And then when he did the revised edition and updated it, he just dropped the Today part and uh, labels it here, uh, titles it Dispensationalism. Moody Press out of Chicago, 1966, was the original Dispensationalism Today. This one, 1995, and then even updated for the third time now in 2007. Charles Ryrie is with the Lord uh, just in the last three or four years now, I think, five or six years maybe, pretty recently. And um, But he was a longtime Dallas Seminary professor, and many of the men we know uh, had Charles Ryrie as a professor when they were in Dallas. So uh, guys like um, Robbie Dean and Tommy Ice, guys like uh, Todd Kennedy and uh, Bruce Einspar, um, Herman Maddox, guys like that, they all had Charles Ryrie as a professor. Todd Kennedy, in fact, was so good friends with him that he would have uh, Ryrie come to Spokane Bible Church on on several occasions that uh, that they were that close. Anyway, Ryrie's a solid guy, and he does represent what I call normative, normative dispensationalism. We're go- you're going to start getting some terms because there were some early guys, and then uh, now there's the more modern version that's called progressive dispensationalism, which is not. And we'll uh, we'll talk about those, but really the baseline normative is uh, is well represented by Charles Ryrie. And so uh, he, this, this is the one you want to start with before you branch out to, to other things. So here's the 14 chapters, actually 12 chapters. Dispensationalism, help or heresy. What is a dispensation? What are the dispensations? The origins of dispensationalism. The hermeneutics of dispensationalism. salvation, And that's, that's going to be huge. I'm going to to start harping on some of these issues even today before we get to some of these chapters. Because if you think dispensationalism is a hermeneutic, you're wrong. It's backwards. You become a dispensationalist because of your hermeneutic. And if you have the right hermeneutic and you use it consistently, you'll become a dispensationalist without fail. But it's not, this is where we get accused of being uh, by by our, our brethren on the other side they uh, will accuse you of using your dispensational lens as a hermeneutic that damages every passage you read. Okay? And they say, well, you're just reading that chapter with a, uh, with a dispensationalist uh, lens, with a dispensationalist view. And, and that's not correct. Maybe somebody does, but none of the dispensational pastors I know do that. And don't confuse the hermeneutic with the result we have the dispensational result because of the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic that is applied consistently. That's the biggest key right there. Because the covenant guys, some of them, many of them claim to use the same hermeneutic, but they don't apply it consistently when it comes to eschatology. They'll apply it for their soteriology, for, for uh, all things up until their eschatology, and then they abandon it for alternatives. All right, so... We don't abandon our hermeneutic because it's inconvenient for the theological conclusions we're trying to get to. We keep the literal hermeneutic everywhere so that whatever theological conclusion it takes us to, we can uh, be honest before the Lord and say, in the integrity of our heart, this is what we've studied and this is where it's brought us. Okay, And I hope that makes sense. If not, we'll, uh, we'll build on that in the coming weeks. So the hermeneutics of dispensationalism is important. Salvation and dispensationalism got to be very clear, there's false accusations out there that, that will try to convince people that we dispensationalists teach different ways of getting saved. That we in the church are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but Old Testament saints got saved by keeping the law, for example, or other things like that. That is not the case. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, and uh, that will be a good chapter for us. The church in dispensationalism, dispensational eschatology, Progressive dispensationalism, that's one of the new chapters that was not in the original book, because in the 1960s that wasn't a thing yet. So I'm glad that Ryrie updated and, and included that information in there. This, by the way, is the current model at Dallas Theological Seminary, and, uh, it's what's taught by the, the present generation of students at Dallas Seminary. Covenant theology, that's the, uh, our brethren on the other side of the fence, okay. They're the they're the guys that that claim to not hold to dispensationalism, and uh, we'll we'll discuss that, well, what it is to be fair to from their own authors their own sources. Uh, ultra dispensationalism. Here's an interesting crowd. They've gotten smaller lately, as if like I say, we're already a remnant of a remnant of a remnant. But the ultra dispensationalists are even a smaller remnant than us. And uh, these are the Acts 9 crowd, the Bollingerites, the the group that is extra, extra, extra rightly dividing the word of truth to where they're wrongly dividing the word of truth. And um, they've got really flawed definitions of Israel and the church. And I think we'll, we'll demonstrate that when we get to chapter 11. And then chapter 12 is his plea. So that's kind of the content we're going to cover. Um, I do intend on basically one chapter per week. Uh, I may tweak that a bit after I start looking at it and realizing some of the chapters are shorter than others and maybe we can combine some some chapters in a particular week. So, stand by. Currently, my reading schedule looks like that, which means today we're doing an introduction and uh, I'll, I, I'll try to have the total calendar finished uh, by next week. Any questions on, on this? Charles Ryrie, I would say this is normative. Ryrie is a student of Schaefer, student of Schofield. He really, uh, by the time he passed away, maybe five years ago, I should get the dates. He was in his 80s, just very recently when he passed away. So he was a younger man than Schaefer, younger man than uh, Schofield. All right, so Dan has a question. February February 2016. Okay, thank you for that. All right, so eight years ago is when he passed away. And here's a sales plug for uh, Longhouse Bible Software. Open up the fact book, plug in the name like Ryrie, you get Charles C. Ryrie there. There you go. Born March 12th, 1920, March 2nd, 1925. Is this how you found it? Good for you. All right. Died February 16th, 2016. So, yeah, little thumbnail there, key article. Bibliographical Dictionary of Evangelicals. Yeah. All right, other questions? Yes.
1: See, uh, this is, I guess, uh, about ultra-dispensationalism. Uh, going back to what we were studying in Geyser Volume, volume 1, we were talking about uh, fundamentalists, like a fundamental uh, Bible-believing Baptist church, right? Uh-huh. Do you, Is that commonly found among
0: that crowd, or is it... Is it probably. bigger than that? So no, that'd be fair. I think yeah, it's probably fair okay. that they would fall under the fundamentalist label.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Like I say, they're getting smaller. We we do have some connections with them though, and in various circles. Um there's a guy who got very popular on the radio and now on the internet, a guy named Les Feldick, do you know that name? Um he actually for a time was good friends with um Adam's grandfather and Glenn. Carnegie, senior in Tulsa, actually engaged several discussions with him and provided a, a classroom space out of Petrian Church where he could teach some classes and, and things. We've had some personal connections over the years, uh, but he is a, an X-9 dispensationalist and some of that stuff is is still pretty popular. You can get it on the websites and stuff. And I'm not sure if he's still alive, probably. No? Okay.
1: uh, What's an Acts 9 dispensationalist? I know we're going to read about it, but you have a little little definition about that.
0: So instead of Pentecost, beginning of the church, uh, it begins, the the Gentile church begins with uh, Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, so Acts 9. And so uh, there's a Jewish church and a Gentile church, which seems to be a complete... Pastorization of of Hebrew of Ephesians and Colossians, where we are neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are a new creation in Christ. Okay, but the idea of a Jewish church, uh, meaning that oh, and James and First, Second, Third John, First, Second Peter, those those are for the Jewish Christians. Uh, it's Paul's writings that are for Gentile Christians, and so um, you and I can we can we can ignore James and First Peter and Second Peter. Those are all for the Jewish Christians. Okay, and uh, but Gentile Christians, we have basically they're Pauline uh, worshipers. It's, it's really a flawed canonicity and a flawed inspiration. It's got a lot of other issues. So we'll get to that. Like I said, it's chapter 11. And if you ever meet them, and, and honestly, I mean, they're sweet people. They love Jesus. Uh, they're just maladjusted in in that ultra-dispensationalism. Huh. Yeah. Anything else? Just in general... Is anything you've heard so far? It's been 20 minutes. Have you heard anything now that makes you want to run for the hills? Because, you know, we're the heretics. Okay. All right, we have a question in the back row. Maury's got a question? No. Okay. Oh. Let's also talk about some other things here. So this is what we're going to cover chapter by chapter. This is going to be good. And, um, you know, I probably have 99% agreement with Ryrie. uh and, and in a few areas that we, we have slight... Differences, they're differences of degree rather than differences of kind. Uh, he did not hold to the fullness of time, for example, after the millennium. that was not in his in his system. but uh like I say, he went to be with the Lord in uh twenty sixteen, and so now he knows better and uh, we we like to say when we all get to heaven, then we get these things sorted out, and uh, my turn will come also, I'm sure. So, that's that. I want to read, uh, just give you an assortment of other authors, for example, um, that I will refer to. Here's one called After the Thousand Years, The Glorious Reign of Christ as Son of Man in the Dispensation of the Fullness of Times. And this is by George F. Trench. It goes back to the 1800s. I think he wrote this in the early 1880s. He died in 1915. And Trench was one of the early guys. I mean, we're talking contemporary with... Derby. we're talking early, early guys in, in uh, uh, Ireland and in England. And uh, Trench was uh, personal friends with uh, Sir Robert Anderson. And actually, they were even related by marriage at one point with um, Anderson's nephew marrying Trench's niece or something like that. Anyway, they, they, they were united by marriage, and and, and and but they were lifelong friends. Uh, Anderson would write forwards to different books that Trench would write Trench would write forwards to different books that Robert Anderson would write and they were very much in agreement um, they were, they loved studying prophecy they uh, were some of the early early uh, dispensationalists that we think of in terms of post Darby dispensationalism um, something else we'll work hard to dispel is this myth that's out there that either Darby invented it or he stole it from a demoniac girl Okay, and neither one of those is true um, I'll recommend some other books like uh, William Watson, William C. Watson, who wrote Dispensationalism Before Darby, uh, and then there's other ones. There's a brand new one out um, that uh, oh, the fellow at the pre-trib conference, Lee Brainerd, has written a new book out there and uh, on some of the early church fathers and their pre-trib uh, writings. And so that's a that's a good resource too. I'll try to list those in some future future classes. Is your hand raised? Okay. Okay, so I have heard the
1: one from from anti-dispensationalists that Darby invented it, quote-unquote, uh-huh. but I
0: never heard, I haven't heard the one about the demoniac girl. What's that about? What? Yeah, Margaret Mac, uh, something or other. It'll probably come up in the reading, but yeah, she, uh, and, and believe it or not, she, um, he had his ideas before he even met her, and then her ideas were not even Consistent with a pre-trib rapture, and yeah, she had other other issues there too. So it's just a myth. It gets thrown out there a lot. You'll encounter it. Just know it's it's wrong. Okay. I believe Paul was a dispensationalist, and he was long before Derby.
2: I was just curious. Um, is, how do you have this in Logos? Because I'm not seeing it when I search. But is it there? It is not.
0: This is a personal book that I built off of a Word document. Okay. So um which I think I still have, so if you want a copy of this I can get that for you. All right, and you can make a Logos book out of it. Yeah, George F. Trench. You can still find the books uh in different used marketplaces and different places. I think I bought six of them over the years and given them away. But yeah, this is uh it's in logos now. Okay. Uh, just send me an email to remind me. Mm-hmm. Because he really did focus on, he found that in his day there were a lot of folks that were kind of viewing the millennium as the pinnacle, and uh, and he said, well, wait a minute, there's something after the millennium. What well, comes after the thousand years? And he really started to focus on the new heavens and new earth, uh, the fact that Revelation 21 and 22 comes after Revelation 20, and uh, and anyway, this was this was marvelous, was foundational, um, right up until and and several other men accepted it. Until you get to Schofield, and then Schofield did not, and his thinking is not. I'm not clear on why he didn't, but he uh, he basically put the millennium and the fullness of time together into one final thing, and then launched eternity future after that. So, so I think pretty much post uh, Schofield, other than Larkin, nobody has included the fullness of time in their in their schematic, but I do, and uh, other. It's starting to spread more and more in our circles. I was invited to, to teach on this topic at a Schaefer conference a few years ago. So uh, more and more people are getting exposed to it. All right, here's some other authors. This is uh, Clarence Larkin, Dispensational Truth, or God's Plan and Purpose in the Ages. And uh, Larkin was in the, mid, oh, in the early 1900s, 19-teens, 1920s, uh, pastor for many years in Philadelphia. And he drew some of the best charts you've ever seen in your life. He was a professional draftsman a uh, technical engineer before uh, he, he went to seminary. He was actually an ordained Baptist pastor, had significant theological training as well as his drawing training. Some people mocked him that he was just good at drawing and had bad theology. Now, he was a solid Baptist pastor and had uh, the training there. He has several books, including big square uh, books with, with all of the expanded diagrams and things, called uh, The Greatest Book of Dispensational Truth in the World which uh, to me is a very humble title, and, and but also accurate. And uh, and I've always appreciated that. Those charts are available in Logos. Logos broke it down into this text and then the diagrams for the text. And so if you've ever seen these charts before, they're really unmistakable. And, uh, and, and we can put these up. The neat thing about these charts is not only can you put them up, but then you can expand them and... Um, Uh, you need to purchase the the books that can, that include them. But yes, the, the Clarence Larkin Library is available. Pretty sure it's still available at Logos.com, where you can get all things Clarence Larkin. And so, yeah, these charts are available. And the neat thing is, as Logos, unlike uh, paper books, you know, you can really zoom in, and you can move around, and you can read some of the fine print and some of the things that you used to have to get a magnifying magnifying glass out to read some of the small print in the uh, in the book form. So yeah, this is uh this is gonna be a good um resource for us in the process of this class. Okay. I, I joke sometimes that the reason why I'm a dispensationalist is because we have all these cool charts and, and usually it's 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 all in good fun and it's it's mildly amusing and it's not true. That's not the reason why. But it is icing on the cake. It is really a nice fringe benefit, uh that once you understand the big picture, um that's why I designed that. And I use this a lot in a lot of different classes because visually I'm a visual learner. And if I can see things in a sequence, if I can see things with color codes and I can see other things, and that, that really helps me to, to think my way through uh, subject matter. So Clarence Larkin, that's another author you want to be aware of. Good guy. Anything you find by him um, is going to be solid, I think. Uh, he did start, he, all, he got into some areas that I'm going to call If he right? He got into some writing, like, for example, um, he was really, uh, I think he was fixated on uh, the, the pyramids, for example, the Egyptian pyramids. And I think in the 19-teens, um, there was a lot of archaeology work that was being done. There were a lot of things that were being measured and discovered for the first time ever. And, and um, Larkin was convinced that you, that the measurements of the pyramid uh, are themselves uh, testimony to some dispensational principles. And most people I know are now doubly dubious and skeptical. Um, But admittedly, I'm not going to... I'm just going to withhold my opinion and say until I know better, I'm not going to call Larkin a a moron because he's ten times smarter than I'll ever be. And he was so right on other things that I want to give this another look. Okay, that's all I'm really going to say about that. Uh, But I have heard... um, solid doctrinal guys who uh, dismissed Larkin because of his chapter on the pyramids. And I think that's unfortunate. Yes, sir?
2: Could could you
1: explain a little bit how the measurements of the pyramids have to do with dispensational errors? I'm a little bit confused on that. Like a fi- the physical pyramids. like yeah, I'll, I'll, talk to, I'll
0: talk to you after class on that. I don't wanna okay, thank but you. It is, a, it is a chapter in Larkin's book. So, so that's Clarence Larkin. Uh, so trench in the 1800s. I didn't put any Darby examples up here. I got several Darby books in my uh, in my library, um, and it might be that uh, I may pick out some of these for reading as well, just simply so we can get some of the early stuff in there. But uh, Darby would have been in the 1800s. Um, Schofield. Start looking through the, the title page of the Schofield Reference Bible. Every editor, there's like seven editors there, every last one of them is a legend in, in dispensational circles. So you get names like uh, Gablein and, and you get names like uh, uh, James Gray and uh, Blackwell and Erdman. Right? Nowadays we know Erdman as a, as a publishing house for Christian books, but the, the man that that's named after was one of these early dispensational scholars and an editor of the original Schofield Study Bible, and Schofield Reference Bible, here we go, I can't begin to tell you, the impact this book had when it was first released in the early 1900s, and then it went through a second and third, some other releases in the 19 teens, even into the 1920s. And these study notes, it was really transformative. It was it was the first time ever. I mean, really, that you would have Bible text and then notes right there on the page. And and some, sadly, some people couldn't tell the difference between the Bible and the Schofield notes, and just If it was in there, it was was Bible, as far as they were concerned. But uh, here's some of these names that you see here. Weston, Moorhead, uh, James M. Gray. And and James M. Gray taught on the fullness of times until he became an editor for Schofield. And then he stopped teaching it after that, and I still don't know why. Um, I'll get a chance to meet him someday. Um, Harris, Gabeline, Erdman, A.T. Peterson, or Pearson, I'm sorry. Uh, Paddingill, William L. Paddingill. So, yeah, just write those names down. Um, those are the good guys, okay? Not that we agree with everything they say, but in the early, early years of the 20th century, they were, they were really cutting edge. And we'll talk about this, because Darby didn't invent dispensationalism, but the systemization and the very consistent developments of these things, that is, uh, Darby's legacy, and, and those that followed in that example really built upon. Uh, on what he did there. All right. Then we have C.I. Schofield, rightly dividing the word of truth. Same C.I. Schofield. Um, there's only one, as far as I know, uh, Schofield. Um, Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield uh, had been, uh, you know, around the U.S. Civil War time. He was a lawyer. He was an attorney. He was an alcoholic. He was a drunk, brutal man. He got saved and uh, started studying and, and really... His notes really transformed America. Um, He also founded a missionary organization in Central America, uh, Central American Missions, I think is what it was called. Uh, Founded a church in Dallas that now bears his name, the Schofield Memorial Church, things like that. Marvelous history. His notes are excellent. Um, You can see his contents here. The Jew, the Gentile, and the Church of God. What a great way to start. First 1 Corinthians 10.32, and we'll talk about that. The divisions of humanity. Keep those straight and you solve a lot of problems. Blend those or confuse those and you create a lot of puzzles, a lot of problems. Okay, The Jew, the Gentile, the Church of God. He had a category of seven. We'll discuss whether that's, you know, like I say, you got different schemes, that's fine. Okay, The two advents, first and second, two resurrections. Uh, resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment. Five judgments, law and grace. The believer's two natures. You realize that even though you have a new nature in Christ, you still have your old nature until you lay it down to physical death, sadly. Um, The believer's standing in state as a church-age believer. That's critical. And then salvation and rewards. Don't confuse those. Believers and professors. So those are his ten chapters. Very worthwhile. There's, I think there's a Schofield Library collection in Lagos. and Anyway, that, this is a, an actual Lagos book. Then we get to uh, Lewis Barry Schaefer. Before he wrote his systematic theology, he had a single standalone volume on dispensationalism. Uh, many of these articles here came out of the different journals, of Bib- Bibsack and so forth. This is a copyright 1936 and then renewed in 1951. Schaefer died in 1952. So, um, and I, depending on where the, the Ryrie reading takes us, most of this will be covered in Ryrie anyway, but this is how he introduced it, the word dispensation, the misleading apprehensions, the creatures of God viewed dispensationally, and bringing in, including the angels, the fact that angels were around before humanity, and then the Gentiles, the Jews, and the church, neither Jew nor Gentile. Scripture doctrine viewed dispensationally, an acceptable standing on the part of man before God. Yeah, this is a wonderful breakdown here. The future hope. Anyway, a great standalone book. I thought about using it, but no, I'm going to stick with uh, with Ryrie. Wrongly dividing the word of truth. H. A. Ironside. H. A. H. a. Ironside. Of course, he's tweaks the name from rightly dividing to wrongly dividing. But this is actually a dispensational critique against the ultra-dispensationalists, against the Acts 9 uh, dispensationalists, or the Bollingerites, as they're called. So this is ultra-dispensationalism examined in the light of Holy Scripture. And this this will answer uh, all of the issues there that need to be dealt with. And of course, um, Feldick and some of these other guys today think that they've refuted everything Ironside ever said, and... uh, I I would disagree. Okay, and on into modern times. You know, it's interesting. The data on this is pretty much the the time frame from when I started seminary. Progressive Dispensationalism, Craig Blazing and Daryl Bach, 1993. Okay, so I came back from Saudi Arabia in 1991. My seminary years were basically from 90 to 94 so uh, yeah, this was this would have been cutting edge had I gone to Dallas instead of training at Austin Bible Church. Maybe they never would have been saturated by this stuff. Um. Anyway, I, I we'll say some more about this when we get to um, that chapter in Ryrie. Ryrie has a whole chapter dedicated to it, so we'll touch upon it there. Uh, just realize this is still this is the ongoing scholarship of our generation. This is the ongoing. Um, approach that Dallas Seminary is is the flagship for, and it's not a good one. I'll, I'll be right up front. This is um, it's easy to say progressive dispensationalism is neither, right? Like like uh, the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. You know, they, they, it's kind of fun to poke holes in different names as they're taken. Um, if you think of progressive in terms of uh actually making progress in furthering the the end goals of theology, I don't think this is it. Okay. And it's uh I guess trying to find a middle ground, trying to find common language with our brethren from the other side, uh with the covenant guys, trying to find a vehicle whereby we can we're dispensationalists and covenant guys alike We'll find uh, common language and expressions and, and thoughts whereby we can kind of unify the, the divided house that is evangelicalism. If that's their stated goal and that's what they were hoping to do, uh, it's not what they accomplished. Okay, and all they really did was um, alienate uh, classical dispensationalists who viewed it as a surrender, and they uh, thrilled to to no end. Uh, the other side, okay, our brethren on the other side were absolutely dazzled at the unconditional surrender that was coming to them from the uh from dallas seminary and and that really to take the flagship school of dispensationalism and to have a product like this with daryl Bach's name connected to it is uh is is kind of sad, okay, but they were thrilled as as nothing, and you can find those quotes in those uh those articles where whereby they celebrate the the complete surrender to the to the covenant point of view. Yes, sir?
1: Uh, So related to what you're talking about right now, um, you always mention with the
0: DTS guys, it was like the 70s where there was the last good classes. I tend to pinpoint 1974 uh, for a lot of reasons because I have a lot of friends that graduated DTS in 1974 and they're all solid (laughs) guys. Um, But also, uh, if Mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken, it's the year of their accreditation. And so once they achieved the accreditation that they longed for for a long, long time, it was kind of a, a tipping point where things went a, a di- direction after that that, um, that a lot of us are not thrilled with.
1: When did DTS start embracing that progressive education? Early, 90s. Early, Early 90s.
0: 90s. I guess late 80s, they were starting to teach it. And by the time it hit book form here in 1993, it was, it was the dominant view. So what about that in-between period between 1974
1: and, and 1989, let's say?
0: Yeah, probably, like you say. It's on the way in, and other things were already sliding down. Oh, okay. I would recommend, um, John Hanna wrote a history of Dallas Seminary, and this year is the 100th year. Uh, 1924 is when Dallas was founded, and founded as a local church seminary, by the way, and I keep envisioning something like this room right here at uh, Schofield Memorial Church in Dallas uh but then they uh got big and, and and expanded their local church boundaries and actually planted an independent school campus and and did that but they, 1924 is the founding year for uh, so we're 100 years down the road from that today
1: yeah. Thank you.
0: okay so just be aware of this um i've i've read it i've i've read it um it's not an easy read but i've read it uh only because uh i was very dissatisfied with several prior attempts to talk to these guys. And I have, I have friends, Stan Newton, others that, that were Dallas graduates. And when I would ask them about this, every time I would get an explanation, it would be different from the previous explanation. And five and six times I said, walk me through this. Why is, why is this so critical and why are we, why are we jumping on board this? What what was wrong with with the, the Schaefer and Schofield view? What was wrong with the Ryrie view? Why why did Ryrie's view need refinement? Tell me how this improves things, and um, and, and I don't know, I just I never could get it satisfactorily answered. And I think I caused a lot of disruption because the people I kept asking questions of were getting frustrated with me, and and then they would admit, well, I don't think I'm explaining this very well. Well, probably not. So I get the book for myself, I read through it, and I'm still. The things that are the beauty of our view is clarity. And this, does, this is the opposite of clarity. Okay, We like to have the, the sine qua non. We're going to learn about the sine qua non of dispensationalism. We're going to learn about the literal hermeneutic. We're going to learn about a clear distinction between Israel and the church. And if you muddle with that, then you're actually destroying a sine qua non, which means you're invoking the the non part, okay? Which means, sine non means without which. I mean, it's the essential definition of what it means to be a dispensationalist. And so if there's a pillar, if you've got a three-legged tripod of what it means to be a dispensationalist, and then you destroy one of those legs, what are you left with? Something that's not dispensationalist. So I think that's going to be evident by the time we, we look at, especially that chapter in uh, in Raya. He's very kind. He's very gracious and uh like I said with Geisler uh more than I would I would be okay because that's not my my gift not my ministry so um any questions on that all right let's just say you take a pen and a piece of paper And you draw a line that represents time, past, present, future. And you start to consider just what you know from the Bible based upon all things biblical and and who we are and where we are. And and we put right here, me, in the middle of that timeline. Okay? What this... It's not a hermeneutic, but it's the result of a hermeneutic that provides for us a a, a framework, a, a working framework for seeing how every passage of Scripture relates to every other passage of Scripture, for seeing how every passage of Scripture relates to human history. And so because we have our literal hermeneutic that creates a dispensational framework, we can think in this in this structured way. And I think it's a beneficial way. And I think it's a way to to recognize that before I got here, before the church age was, okay, that there was, um, that for born-again believers in the world, that they operated significantly differently than I operate today. And those differences, and even the covenant guys will, will agree to all, everything I'm saying here, that those differences are profound. Nobody brought a goat with them this afternoon. Praise God. Okay? Not because animals are bloody when you kill them, and, and it's, not, it's not the gruesomeness of it, but it's for the theological reality that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And, and we have scripture that makes clear that the, the animal ritual were shadows of a substance, and the substance belongs to Christ. And so these are, again, these are the verses that put, that that contribute towards the overall framework. But you only can build it properly if you stay consistent in that literal hermeneutic everywhere. So that means you can't pick and choose, and, and it's not good enough to have a systematic theology that uses a literal hermeneutic in six of the seven divisions. But then switches to something allegorical in the eschatology division. The moment you do that, you're 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 changing streams in the middle of the horse, okay? Or you're changing horses in the middle of the stream. Neither course is advisable. All right. And uh, and and it's just intellectually unfair, biblically unfair, hermeneutically unfair. Uh, Jesus didn't do that. He employed the same consistent literal hermeneutic in all things, including eschatological passages. And specifically, when he's quoting from Isaiah and he's teaching it in the Gospel of Luke, and he has First Advent and Second Advent passages in the same context of Isaiah 61, he stops his reading in in one-third of the way through verse 2 and says, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that... Is where we get our literal hermeneutic. We're imitators of Christ, and we handle the text like He handled the text. And anything less than that is is wrong, frankly. And that's why we. I'm glad we took the time to do the the prolegomena and the bibliology from uh, from Geisler to kind of set the table for this. So here we are. Here I am, and I'm in the church. Okay, so I know where I am, and I'm in the church, and I know that this is uh, 2024 AD. Okay, right. Okay? 2024 A.D. And we just start thinking our way through. We start asking ourselves, has, has has the church always been here? No. Okay? Adam and Eve weren't in the church. Adam wasn't the first pastor. Eve wasn't the first pastor's wife. Okay? There was no church uh, for Adam and Eve. There was no church for Moses, for Daniel. Okay? So... This is kind of an approach, Ralph Ron, would use with his through the Bible format when he would do a home Bible study, and he would put a clothesline up, and he'd start adding things, and uh, and just using it as a game and using it as a as a icebreaker to get people thinking, you know, and and just hang these names on there. Okay, so you know where does Moses go? Is Moses before me or after me? And then you know where where does where does uh, Noah go? Is he before Moses or after Moses? Where does Jesus go? And all these things. And putting them in the timeline, putting them in the sequence, we're going to be doing that, I think. Maybe not on a personal level, like with Noah and Moses and that, but, but conceptually there's no issue with doing that by using the, the dispensational labels. So when we talk about the stewards, presently the church is God's steward on earth today. The body of Christ is the church and that, that is the corporate body that has the stewardship duties that they are invested with as a corporate body today. If you're not familiar with this, this language, we're going to give all these definitions. All right? Because the king isn't here. The king is seated at the Father's right hand. That He came, the kingdom was at hand, but they crucified him, and he's now returned to the Father, seated at the Father's right hand. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So no, we, we need to we need to be clear um, in the scriptures and in making the applications to our day and age that we are the church, not the kingdom. That'll make some people mad, okay? Because the kingdom is still coming. The kingdom will get here when the king gets here. And that is a discussion that that dispensationalists have. Covenant people will have not everyone agrees on the on the language and so it's useful for us to know what terms we're dealing with and how we're using them so knowing where we are as church knowing what came before the church okay and uh, the holy spirit descended on the day of pentecost which i think i decided was may 24th of 33 ad uh, i may have to adjust that if i'm told i'm wrong on that but i think it was may 24th uh, i said may 25th this morning and that's that's not right may 25th is my anniversary May 24th, I think, of 33 AD is the, is the day of Pentecost. So, uh, from 33 AD, and here we are, 2024, we're coming up on 2,000 years now. Not quite. Rapture pending, if we're here for another nine years, I don't think we'll be here another nine years, but rapture pending, we're gonna see the, uh, the 2000th uh, solar year, uh, since, uh, since Pentecost. As if that counts for anything. Now, uh, of course, the cross of Christ was 50 days prior to that. Okay. And uh, before the church, who were the vested stewards in this world? The Jews. The Jews. And this is where, again, you're going to have different vocabulary depending on the author you're reading. I grew up in my childhood at a vacation Bible school. We had, uh, it was basically derived from every theme in Houston. And it was Gentiles, Jews, church, kingdom, is how it was phrased. And so Gentiles was Adam to Abraham, Jews was Abraham to Jesus, church was from Jesus to now, and then kingdom was the, the future millennium after the church. And so it's just a four, it's a scheme of four. And there's nothing wrong with a scheme of four. It's basic, it's not as comprehensive as a scheme of seven, but it's not wrong in as much as it details the Gentiles preceded, the Jews preceded the church, and the church won't be here forever. There is something after the church because Jesus is descending to the air and we're going to meet him in the air and uh, he's going to take us to the mansions he's gone to prepare. There's different ways you can diagram that different arrows you can use. But it's important to note that before Jesus lands on this earth, that'll happen at least seven years later, Okay, you have the second advent of Jesus Christ when he lands on the Mount of Olives. His feet touch ground on the Mount of Olives and that mountain's going to split north and south and a brand new valley is going to appear that never been there before. Okay, But when Jesus' feet hit and the mountain splits and there's now a way of escape that's been provided there, just... Think how exciting that's going to be. But that's not the rapture. Because of the rapture of the church, his feet don't touch the ground. And, uh, and our feet leave the ground. How fun is that? And we meet the Lord in the air. And then he takes us home. He takes us, he says in John 14, he's gone to prepare a place for us. And where is that? Where is Jesus right now preparing a place for us? Heaven. Thank you. It's not Jerusalem. Anybody think he, Jesus is in Jerusalem right now preparing us a dwelling place? No. Okay. One of the big differences between the rapture and the church. Does he land on the ground or not? Does he meet us in the air and then take us back to heaven? Huge difference. In the rapture, he's coming for his saints. In the second advent, he's coming with his saints. That, that helps us too. And how, how, how does he come with us until he first comes for us? Obviously, the rapture has to precede the second advent. So it's good to know where we are, who we are, that we are a church. Before us were the Jews. Sometimes it's labeled as dispensation of the Jews. Sometimes it's labeled as the dispensation of Israel. Okay. It could be labeled different things. And as uh, this chart indicates, well, I'll, I'll get back to that later. Okay, I'm trying to keep it simple when you're drawing on paper. But you can get as detailed and as focused as you want to get with it. Okay, These are schematics that are designed to help you think through what the Bible says. And the Bible doesn't have a book of dispensations in it. <laughs> okay, This is why we're comparing Scripture to Scripture and we're comparing and contrasting. We're putting everything together. If there's something that doesn't fit... We um, we pray harder and study more and find a way to make it fit. <laughs> okay? Biblically. Biblically. And if we have different ways of doing that, then we have different ways of doing that. We learn how to relax. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. I'm going to make a new one. Let me do that. Let me make a new one. And then I'll come back to that one. All right, here's a new one. Book of Daniel, Book of Revelation. Do they go together? Yes, they go together. They, they their subject material largely overlaps. There's a lot of uh, congruence. There's a lot of uh, things that are analogous between the two books. They are they're long understood as as tandems. Okay, I would teach a Daniel and Revelation class in Ukraine when I would go over there. So Daniel in the Hebrew Old Testament and the things that Daniel will talk about with respect to the future day of the Lord, the future tribulation, the future uh, time of judgment for the Jewish people. And he would speak of time, times, and half a time. He would speak of a seven-year tribulation because there's 70, 69, one left over. We would understand a seven-year tribulation of which we would have two halves, time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, three and a half years. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Book of Daniel? Okay. And so you do a study in the book of Daniel, and you think, okay, I'm solid on this. This is looking great. But then you get to Revelation. Again, the material is largely uh, overlaps. It's, It's largely uh similar material and it covers the same territory, the future tribulation, the events after the rapture of the church, because the church disappears after chapter three. And then uh you got this time of, of, of judgment upon the world, and yet we have uh seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh my. Okay, it's like lions and tigers and bears, oh my but in in revelation it seals and trumpets and bowls now this is where um, good men will differ but this is this is the exercise of what I'm talking about because as we're putting charts together we're putting diagrams together we're we're creating schematics and visual aids and other things to help us to process the information we realize that we are um Comparing scripture to scripture and using the whole counsel of the Word of God, we are systematically and comprehensively detailing in a way that the Bible itself does not do. There's not a book of the Bible that systematically and comprehensively uh, details the intersection of Daniel and Revelation. Daniel's the book of Daniel, Revelation's the book of Revelation, and there's not another book out there in the Bible. Does Revelation finished the Bible, there's not another book out there that, that uh, does the systematic, comprehensive, schematic diagram work that we're doing in this class, that we do all the time in our theological studies. But do you ever try to take two pieces of cake and divide them among three children? You understand what a mess that makes? You're going to have an unhappy child before you're done? Okay. That okay, I've got two halves of the tribulation. Three and a half years, three and a half years. Maybe I'm going to call the first one the tribulation, the second half the great tribulation, or maybe I'll call the whole thing the great tribulation, or maybe I'll call... Anyway, different people have done different things with these labels, with these with the information, the content of these passages. And even the title, Time of Jacob's Trouble, that doesn't come from Daniel, that comes from Jeremiah, right? Or Isaiah? Jeremiah. And you get other passages of Scripture, and you've got to put these together. So how do we then take the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls? And so you may find that um, you're going to have men that will put the seals in the first half, and the trumpets and bowls in the second half. Or maybe you'll find men that'll put seals and trumpets in the first half and bowls in the second half. Or you might find men that put seals, trumpets, and bowls all in the second half. And then other things in the first half are the beginning of birth pangs that lead up to the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Ah, but then you remember, wait a minute. It's not just Daniel and Revelation. I've also got Matthew 24 and 25. (laughs) Oh, okay. So now I've got Jesus and what he had to say in the Olivet Discourse. And a lot of what he had to say in the Olivet Discourse really matches six of those seven seals. Okay? And then there's a neat diagram, neat chart that Tommy Ice put together years ago that shows the Matthew 24 parallel with the uh, the seven seals of, of revelation. So I'm, I'm trying to illustrate here that um, that these are these are very fair exercises, thought exercises, theological endeavors. These are um, it's uh, and, and then you may find that different pastors come to different conclusions of how to relate how to Divide this by three and divide this by two, and how to uh, overlay overlay them. Does that make sense? Okay. Other things, for example. Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about a war. The Gog-Magog attack against Israel. And we have nations that are identified there. And it seems the modern day equivalents today would include uh, Iran and Turkey, possibly Russia, also um, North Africa and some places. And um, almost everybody will include those. Even if maybe Russia itself is not questioned as much as it should be questioned on, uh, on some things. But that's okay. Just people see Roche in Russia, and just jump on it, okay? Um, anyway, I'll let that go for tonight. The, uh, these are all areas whereby, so Ezekiel 38 and 39, when does that war take place? Is that in the first half? Is that in the second half? Is that before the first half? Is that in the church age, after the church age, before the tribulation? Is that even at the end of the millennium because there's a, a Gog-Magog reference at the end of the millennium in Revelation chapter 20? Is that the same Gog-Magog reference as the Ezekiel Gog-Magog reference? Even within Ezekiel 38 and 39, huge debate. Is that one war, war or two wars? Is the Ezekiel 38 war over and done with and the Ezekiel 39 war is a, is a follow-up, a second war? Or is it a two-chapter description of the same event? Of the same invasion, the same war, and you'll find good men on both sides of that so um what am I saying with this? I'm saying um appreciate the different uh schematics, the different charts, appreciate the different um, the different uh, uh diagrams for what they are. Appreciate the work that's gone into creating those. And then at the same time, just know that none of this is God-breathed and inspired. Okay? That uh, God didn't put a chart like this in, in the Bible. These are the charts we're creating to best represent the total picture that we have from the Bible. Does that make sense? So let me go back now to the previous one. Continue doing this. Because uh, what came before the Jews? I mean, the Jews weren't always the stewards, right? Was there a stewardship before the Jews? Well, when did the Jews even start? Who was the first Jew? Well, Abraham was the first Jew. Well, some people would dispute that. But his son Isaac, his son Jacob... The 12 tribes of Jacob come from the 12 sons of Jacob. So essentially the God of Israel is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you can, you can point to Abraham and the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. You can uh, call, uh, and, and this is going back to 2000 B.C. I have more precision on that in the Through the Bible Notebook, but the uh, ballpark figures around 2000 years B.C. for the the call of Abraham. Go forth from your land and from your people and from your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. And this begins the dispensation of Israel. The dispensation of the Jews. Because prior to that, from Adam to Abraham, from Adam to Abraham, you have Gentiles. Or what I call the dispensation of man. Just because I'm quirky that way. Okay? Okay? Um, I don't believe you can have Gentiles until you have Jews. And and there was no such thing as a Gentile until the call of Abraham. And then once Abraham was called, everybody except descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now Gentiles. And it's only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that give us uh, the Jews or the nation of Israel. And so you talk about differences. You talk about different modes. Much of what we're talking about really... I was harping on this morning at the 9.30 hour with Ephesians chapter 2. Because every advantage that Israel had there was not a feature of the Jewish, of the Gentile stewardship. From whom comes the Christ according to the flesh. The Messiah is a Jewish provision. There was no Messiah promise to the Gentiles. Their promise was a seed of the woman promise. The seed of the woman promise it goes back to Adam and Eve and their expulsion from the garden. And the the anticipation is that that the, uh, the, the, the coming seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Let's look at that. Genesis 3.15. Can't let an entire hour go by without opening up a Bible. This is a Bible church. Adam and Eve are sinners. God's come around to investigate things and start asking questions and finding that indeed they are sinners. And uh, Adam blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. Judgment now follows. But now as the Lord is speaking to the serpent, here's what he says. This is sometimes called the proto-evangelum, the prototype gospel message. I will put enmity between you and the woman... That's the serpent and the woman. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And the seed of the woman promise is significant because women don't have seed. Women have eggs. Men have seed. Okay? If you have questions on that, come see me after class. But the uh, the basic biology on this, seed of the woman tells you a lot. And it's a singularity of reference because it's called a he... And uh, the seed of the serpent is also a he. But he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. And we understand the seed of the woman gets fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the virgin-born son of, not Joseph, okay, he was out of the picture, but God uh, impregnated a virgin. And the seed of the woman offspring is the virgin-born Jesus Christ. And indeed, when it comes to the head wound and the heel wound, clearly one of those is permanent and eternal. The heel wound, by comparison to the head, this is what the metaphor speaks to, we taught all this in in the Genesis class, but was he injured in the process of saving us? Of course. He who knew no sin was made to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was wounded for our transgressions, by his stripes we are healed. He was, he was wounded deeply and not just the, the physical wounds of, of physical scourging but the spiritual wounds of accepting our sin and accepting the wrath of God as the judgment of that sin. And yet it's a heel wound compared to the head wound that he inflicts upon the serpent. Because for the serpent there's no recovery, there's no resurrection, there's no glory. He's done. He is a defeated foe and he will be in the lake of fire for all eternity. So you contrast the the bruising of the head versus the bruising of the heel. You you uh but you see the seed of the woman as a promise, and this is the promise, this is the only promise that Gentiles from Adam to Abraham had to work with. Okay? Now later on they would get a Noahic covenant where they'd be God promised to not flood the earth again. Uh but in terms of the future Redeemer, the future seed of the woman uh, serpent head crusher the Noah Covenant didn't advance any information on that. So in terms of the future human redeemer, the seed of the woman serpent head cruncher, uh, head crusher is all they had to go with for the entirety of the dispensation of the Gentiles. And no written scriptures. Job didn't write anything. Well, depending on when we think the book of Job was written and when was it translated into Hebrew and when was it put into the, the Hebrew canon but I don't believe the book of Job was accepted as a canonical book for the Gentile people I don't know maybe I'm wrong maybe we'll find out that it had great circulation in the days prior to uh, the days prior to Moses um, but if so that would be the only scripture and Job himself didn't have any scripture when he endured what he endured okay But with the coming of Abraham comes a covenant. And the coming of a covenant, we're told, the covenants belong to, remember this morning, Romans 9, the covenants belong to Israel. The covenants and the promises and the hope and the temple services and all the giving of the law, the fathers, all of that was to Israel. None of that was to the Gentiles. And so we have these distinctions. And for 2,000 years, from Abraham to Jesus, Israel maintained their stewardship. The uh, conclusion of which they were warned about. The uh, discipline of which they were warned about. Of course, national dispersion they were warned about, and they even experienced with captivity. The Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and they were brought back into the land, and then the Roman captivity and the global dispersion thereafter. Those things they were warned about. In addition, they were warned about the people of strange tongue and stammering lips. And they were warned about that as a sign of their national dispersion. All of these are passages that we have to put into our uh, computation for the framework that we diagram and the schematics that we create to have our our best understanding of Scripture. You see why failure to do this causes problems? Where the reason why? Because where we present ourselves approved to God work meaning not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Sometimes I think our, our covenant friends um, they don't accept the premise of rightly dividing the word of truth, or they say we're we're not doing it right. Okay, how do you do it? Okay, how do you do it? And if uh, if we're wrong the way we do it. Show me. What's your diagram? What's your schematic? And if... um, Some of the the, the most obvious warning signs are if they don't distinguish between Israel and the church, that's a giveaway. Because uh, they're not the same. And if you try to conflate them all into just one big redeemed family of God kind of a thing, then you're failing to realize the differences between law and grace, Jew and uh, church, Israel and church, Old Testament, New Testament, all these things that must be rightly divided. So I think that's worth worth a closer look. How long is the church age going to last? I mean, it's been nearly 2,000 years now. Are we about done? By the way, um, Archbishop Usher said uh, Adam was 4004 BC. I, I prefer a date in the 5700s BC. So from Adam to Abraham, that's a pretty lengthy time, 3,700 years, more or less. 3,700 years. That's longer than the old, and than, then uh, Israel, from 2000 BC to 33 AD. Okay. And now here we are in 2024, and we don't know when. It could be, maybe we could be 10,000 years away from the rapture. I hope not, but uh, the rapture could be today, and I hope so. And every day, that's our blessed hope. Every day is a gift of God's grace, and every day we're uh, at His pleasure, because all of us, any one of us, can die physically at any moment, and then even without physical death, all of us could depart at any moment when the trumpet sounds. So the church age is an age of imminency, and it always has been. It always has been. You know, um, Israel only developed a certain imminency when they received the Danielian prophecy once they started knowing that there were 77s that had been decreed for their people. And then they could start counting. And uh, in the early years of those 77s, when Artaxerxes gives his decree, they start thinking, hey, we can, we can restore and rebuild Jerusalem now. And they go back and they restore and rebuild Jerusalem but based upon the prophecies of Daniel chapter nine, they uh, they're, they're looking at four hundred ninety years. That's not that's not a that's not a doctrine of imminency, at least for the first four hundred and seventy three years. Okay, when you get closer towards the end of that, do you think imminency uh, changes? Totally does, totally does. That's right. Which is why in uh, in the lead up to the appearance of Jesus, there were many. Uh, false Christ. There were many that rose up and claimed to be the Christ. There was a lot of uh, strange things that were happening. There were even, even though they hadn't had a prophet for 400 years, there were still, um, you know, some some kook named Simeon said that he was a prophet and that he wasn't going to die until he saw the Christ. And then, uh, lo and behold, he turned out not to be a kook. Okay, he turned out to be real, and he was in the temple when they brought Christ in, and then only then was he able to to physically die. And uh, Anna also in the temple, and, and these other examples. I think it's uh, that imminency started to become very real when John the Baptist started preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all of a sudden, ooh, and, and people were paying attention, and, and even uh, now. And then Herod gets nervous because these magi show up, and and there's just so much that's happening there. The kingdom is at hand until it wasn't until Jesus. Uh, had that huge hinge moment in his ministry and started teaching the mysteries of the kingdom and started teaching the uh, the imminent crucifixion and the delayed kingdom. And I think you can see that in Matthew 10. You can see that in Matthew 12. You can see the the transition that happens there at that point in, in Jesus' ministry. So now we function under imminency. We always have been from the day of Pentecost and from the time rapture doctrine was revealed, The whole church, the entirety of the body of Christ has understood that they could be in the rapture generation. Paul thought he could be in the rapture generation. Every generation since Paul has thought they could be in the rapture generation. Who knows? Again, 10,000 years from now, there will be people watching my videos and laughing at me, thinking that I was in the rapture generation. And they're going to be convinced that they're in the rapture generation, because it's never been as bad as they have it. And we think we have it as bad as it's ever been. Okay. So um, once the church is raptured out of here, the Jews have their stewardship restored because they still have a 70th seven that they have to endure. And then once they endure that 70th seven, then they have a kingdom. And so it is the continuation of the Jewish stewardship. It's currently suspended, but it will be restored. And uh, so the Jewish stewardship is restored for the tribulation and for the millennial kingdom. This is also a Jewish stewardship. Part of this will detail as we get into some of the more fine details of the ages within the dispensations. So uh, you, you might be aware of the fact that from uh, Abraham to Moses that they it was a Jewish stewardship, but they didn't have the law yet, so it couldn't be thought of as an age of law. It was just simply an age of promise from from Abraham down to, to, Adda, to uh, Moses. But once Moses gives the law, when Moses gave the law, did that change the stewardship at all? It was still a Jewish stewardship. Just now they're under the the operational procedures of Mosaic Law. So it's unique characteristics within a larger dispensation that helps us to categorize the different ages uh, as subdivisions underneath the overall dispensational heading. And really, that's what this table here attempts to do, because as you uh, zoom in on Israel, you'll see that they operated under promise, then they operated under law, and then something greater than the law was here Something greater than the temple was here. The uh, the actual Lord of the Sabbath came on the scene. I, I break down the age of the incarnation as a unique age, a unique time frame within the overall dispensation of Israel. But notice, the Jews were still the stewards. That didn't change. In about halfway through this age of law here, um, or a third of the way through the age of law here, um, David became their king. And when David became their king, you know what happened to the stewardship? Nothing. It was still a Jewish stewardship, even though David was now their king. And all of the kings after David, is still a Jewish stewardship. And even when the Davidic throne was vacated and the temple was destroyed and the Jews were taken off in the Babylonian captivity, it remains a Jewish stewardship. And they come back and they build a new temple and all impressed with themselves while the old men were crying because it was so pathetically small compared to Solomon's temple, it was still a Jewish stewardship. And even though they fell under Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman dominion, they're under political Gentile dominion, but they still maintain a Jewish stewardship in spiritual matters. They're still the custodians of the canon. What is their advantage? Great in every respect, because they're entrusted with the oracles of God. And so these are the kind of things that will help us So we don't confuse political dominion with stewardship, right? Because as I said, Israel was under Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman uh, overlords under their political dominion while they still had stewardship duties. It's curious to me when our friends on the other side are critics, those who hate dispensationalists, but it's it's common. I've, I've been accused and I've heard it in different venues that we are uh, attempting to establish a theocratic kingdom uh, on this earth. Like, I don't know who's doing that. I'm not. Okay? I have a stewardship, yes, but I'm under a Gentile political dominion right now called the United States of America. At least it used to be called that. I'm not sure what the next one's going to be called. And maybe Texas will fight for independence and sign me up, whatever else happens there. But don't confuse the political dominions with... The stewardship. I think that's going to be very useful for us as well. And so an age of promise, an age of law, an age of the incarnation. But it still fell under the umbrella of the Jewish stewardship or the dispensation of Israel. Likewise, in the future, when when Israel has their stewardship restored, uh, they're going to have an age of tribulation and an age of the millennial reign. Still under a Jewish stewardship. Notice it didn't change when David became king. It's not going to change when Jesus becomes king. He'll be a Jewish king on a Jewish throne in a Jewish stewardship for the millennial kingdom. The church had two ages. The apostolic age and the post-apostolic age. The age of the local church. The age where there's no more living apostles. The first age lasted about 70 years. The second age now has lasted almost 2,000 years. There's another distinction, I think, that Um, Dispensationalism does well. Our diagrams, our schematic understandings, our frameworks, uh, these things are very useful for us in uh, distinguishing between the apostolic age and the post-apostolic age. And if you don't do the work to do this kind of a breakdown, then you might find yourself vulnerable to um, poor understandings of pneumatology. Uh, continuationism and the failing to realize what some of the temporary spiritual gifts were were there for. And and why, why don't we have apostles today? Why don't we have prophets today? Why don't we have um, the things that they had in the first century church? Because we're not in the first century church. How about that? So some of those things, I think, are going to be useful for us as well. And then we will do better than Ryrie and better than Schofield and better than Schaeffer. Uh, we will actually go back to some of the older, uh, like Larkin and James M. Gray and George F. Trench and some of the others. And we're going to realize that the millennium ends after a thousand years with the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. Then we have the new heavens and the new earth. And we have the dispensation of the fullness of times. Ephesians one ten the dispensation of the fullness of times, after the millennium, after the thousand years, the new heavens and the new earth, because according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are not looking for the millennium. We are looking for the fullness of times after the millennium. And so that's a, an additional stewardship that, again, you're not going to get with Schofield, Ryrie, Schaefer, um, Definitely not going to get it with progressive dispensationalism, okay? But the uh, some of those older men, like I say, George F. Trench, James M. Gray, um, George Soltow is another one that held to that. I'll give you a whole breakdown on the uh, the pre-Darby dispensationalists and uh, those that held to a fullness of time understanding. So you'll be encouraged to know that, that your pastor didn't just make this up out of nowhere. Okay? that uh, there have been faithful men teaching this stuff for a long, long time. Okay, final thoughts, questions, concerns, uh, complaints, compliments, anything. (laughs) No, no, no. Are you excited for this? Are you eager to read this? Some of you have already started, right? Who's read chapter one already? Outstanding. Who's read chapter two already? All right, who's read chapter three already? Man, you guys are awesome. Who's read the whole book already? Okay. Well, read it again, and read each chapter as we come to it each week. Like I say, for this week we're going to start with chapter one, dispensationalism, helper heresy, and we'll work our way through. So that's from page thirteen, and then it'll get us down to. uh, It's not a long chapter, page twenty-seven, so that's not bad at all. I don't know. Well, we'll do this for a couple weeks. We'll do a chapter at a time, chapter at a time, and I think that's also going to allow us to expand and to go to other books and to do other diagrams, things like that. Um, if if it starts to become obvious, maybe three or four weeks from now, that these chapters just aren't long enough, then maybe I'll start assigning two per week or three per week or whatever um, so we have more time to, to use some of the other material as well. Yes, sir?
1: Yeah, so I have a question in regards to um, how you prepare... Okay, so it's kind of a a, a fold question. It's a it's a specifically a pastoral question. So when you started as a pastor, and I'm sure I'm sure Mr. Uh, pastor Braun was teaching you dispensationalism and all that.
0: Mm-hmm. So when
1: you studied the scriptures, how did you? What was the word here? Uh, how are you able to rightly divide the word of truth with the big picture of the overall scriptures? And then when you have to get real small into a passage and you're trying to understand it within context of the overall, does that just does that just take years and years of study to understand all that?
0: No, no, you can get that very early and get that very quickly, and you'll have that before we're done here in 15 weeks. So yeah, you can get that very early and very quickly. And, and uh, Ryrie does a good job spelling that out. So and, and biblically, you can think your way through, you know, just in terms of this book, and you uh, you find Acts chapter two in here. All right, there's Acts, there's Acts. All right, there's Acts chapter two. And so uh, that's your church age. Okay. This is Old Testament. All right. So start with that, essentially. It's not hard to drill down. If you're in the book of Zephaniah, you're not dealing with a church age text. Okay. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, even though they're written in Greek and they're included in our New Testament portion of the Bible, they precede Acts chapter 2, and so they are before Pentecost, and dispensationally, they are Old Testament books.
2: Ah.
0: So we'll have more of that to say. And then, of course, then you get into your eschatological books, which, which passages of Scripture apply to the tribulation, to the millennium, to the fullness of time, things like that. So essentially, you have to start in Acts 2, and then you have to stop at Revelation 3. Okay? And then you can say, all right, that's church, this is tribulation, this is a uh, millennium in between verse six and verse seven. And then this is uh, fullness of time in the last in the last two chapters. Wow.
2: So you're going to get
0: all of that. That's going to be that's going to be easy peasy when we're done. All right. Microphone to the back row, please.
2: Pastor Bob, in the last couple of hundred years, you've been able to look back and read about these other men who have uh, taught on the subjects that you've taught on. Huh? Okay. Um, and that we have believers who are dispensational, but they, they're they looking at things differently than maybe what we might look at. Sure. Um when when we look at promises in the Bible or statements in the Bible uh it appears that um just for one example it talks about uh in the 70th week Armageddon time frame that there will be an army coming from the east uh uh-huh. and it mentions 200 million uh uh-huh. The question I have, and this isn't the only one, but I'll just use that one as an example. Uh, If there's a 200 million man army and it takes 2000 years for a nation to get to the place that they would be able to have a 200 million man army, does that shed any different light on how we would look at things without compromising dispensations at all. I don't,
0: I don't think so, because uh, that, that number 200 million you get with, by the way, that's the number of demons that are coming out of the abyss. And so that does not require a human population of, to reach those numbers. Um, it doesn't require that you have the, the modern day state of China or India or other population centers that, that have a billion citizens that can post an army of 200 million. Uh, because that number actually centers on the demons coming out of the abyss.
2: All right. Um, that's the first for me. I understand that they're coming out of the abyss, but it was taught, as I recall it anyway, that those 200 million would be demon-possessed by them.
0: Well, see, and that's again, That's comparing a scripture with a scripture, and that's saying, you know what? I've got other prophecies in Isaiah, I've got other prophecies in Daniel that there is an army coming from the east. The Euphrates River will be dried up and they're going to have a highway coming across. And I don't think it's wrong to link that with the 200 million demons. But that's a connection we're making in our diagrams, and our schematics and our framework. That is a deductive conclusion, and maybe there's there's better ways to link those.
2: Okay. Uh, the last question, I'll leave it on this. This is um, we have things mentioned in scripture that the beast will be able to have worldwide control.
0: Uh, not at first, but eventually, yes.
2: Correct. But it's all going to be a
0: regional power early. And becomes a global power when he overthrows the harlot uh, of uh, Revelation 17.
2: And the key doesn't seem to be military or economic at the midpoint. It seems to be his ability to enforce worship at the midpoint of the 70th week.
0: Maybe, yeah. Okay.
2: So the question is, if we have... um, Today, we've been fortunate to be able to have great teaching and at the same time see things unfold uh, technologically where these type of things at previous decades would have never been able to happen mm-hmm. because we have the ability for, for banking, uh, um, health care, which we've experienced in the last few years that lacked in care, mm-hmm. and then the ability to track people. And even our militaries have that phenomenal ability to know where everyone is, uh, all, th- all done through computer technology. We've known for decades now that there was a beast computer, I think is it in Belgium or someplace, the whole idea that there would be a source of having the capability of tracking all of this simultaneously, which is an incredible loss of our freedom, as we would know it. But scripture
0: I think two thousand years
2: ago said that this is going to happen. Yeah.
0: So um, I see what you're saying, and and I agree. And we got the technology is in place now for a lot of things that were kind of unthinkable a generation ago. you know, when the two witnesses die in Jerusalem and their bodies are on display for the whole world, you know, that was written 2,000 years ago before they knew anything about live webcams and, and uh, apps on your smartphone that can you know, they can check the uh, the witnesses cam kind of a thing.
2: Do you believe that those two witnesses are
0: probably Elijah and Moses? Probably or, not. Probably not. I okay. used to, but not anymore.
2: Okay, reason?
0: Is this your last question? Yes, it is. <laughs> those are the three questions I was actually going to ask. The third one you right. took off for me. Okay. I, I used to think they were Moses and Elijah. I used to think they were Enoch and Elijah, and I'd go back and forth. Um, but I believe it's. I think the return of Elijah is a separate question, and those two witnesses are contemporary witnesses of their own generation. That they are prophets that are lifted up to their own people of their own time of their own of their own context. Same thing with one hundred forty-four thousand. Those are contemporary Jewish believers of the tribulational era.
2: Since you brought that up, they will be scattered throughout the world, do you believe? Since what? 144,000, since you brought it up, a follow-up question. Do you believe that they will be scattered throughout the world?
0: Yes, because they precede the regathering of Israel that happens in the second advent. So in the tribulational ministry, they are Jewish people all over the globe that are uh, functioning from the 12 tribes and and uh, witnessing in in Gentile lands and the context there. So. All right. Well, we've got a good start. Thank you for all those. Let's uh, close in prayer. And then uh, I've bent some of my Bible pages. I don't like that. Then uh, we'll dismiss for the day. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this class. And I pray for these students that you would bless each reading week by week. And, uh, and father, give us that clarity that uh, we appreciate of having the uh, the big picture view. Thank you also, Father, because through the Bible two years ago is, is uh, an ongoing resource for us as well. And in all these endeavors, uh, having a framework in place is so useful for us. Uh, but never ever, Father, let us confuse the framework with the scriptures. The diagram cannot take the place of the scriptures. The diagrams and schematics are helpful, but they are not God breathed and inspired and they will not endure forever as your word endures forever. So, Father, uh, help keep these things straight. Um, never allow us to turn dispensationalism into a hermeneutical lens, Father. we It's a result of the hermeneutical lens that you have blessed us with, and so we thank you for that as well. In all these things, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.